Chapter 5 of Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H.C. Adams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Friend, Arlington, Virginia, USA. Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H.C. Adams. Chapter 5. The sailors who had remained loyal to Captain Rankin obeyed his summons with prompt alacrity. They were reduced to seven, three having gone with the first mate in the pinnace. The captain gave them their orders, which they proceeded to put into execution as rapidly and with as little noise as possible. The boat was brought immediately under the ship's side, and a number of articles put into it, the first being the carpenter's chests, and a load of spars and planks from the workshop. Then the boat returned for boxes and barrels, containing provisions to last for a fortnight, together with all the firearms and cutlasses on deck. Then a quantity of bedding, knives, forks, and crockery, and a large tarpaulin which had been used to form a shelter from the heat for the passengers. A number of empty boxes and barrels were also lowered into the sea, which, as the tide was then running, would be washed up on the further reef. There was a great deal to be done, but the hands were all active and willing, and by the time when the moon rose all the most necessary articles had been ferried over. As soon as the light permitted, the men, under the direction of the carpenters, began putting up a hut at the spot indicated by the captain. They fortunately found one or two crevices in the rock in which uprights could be fixed. A long spar was run across from two of these, and the tarpaulin stretched over it. Then four shorter posts were placed at the corners, but at two of these points there were no crevices, and the spars had to be placed in tall barrels filled with stones. The sides were next filled in with planks, with a door and an opening to serve as a window at the end farthest from the wreck. The gig continued her voyages under the conduct of Captain Rankin, George, and the second mate, and almost everything that would be required was brought over. Mr. Whitaker's chest had been one of the first things cared for. By daybreak, a very tolerable hut had been constructed, and the captain directed them, as the next job, to put up a barricade extending the whole length of the hut on the side facing the ship. This was formed of barrels and chests containing large stones, of which there was abundance on the reef, and spaces between them being similarly filled. When this had been completed, it was broad day, and it was impossible to expect that the crew, who by this time must have slept off their drunken debauch, could be kept any longer in ignorance of their officer's proceedings. The second mate was sent, therefore, to inform the passengers of the removal to the further reef and convey them over to it as quickly as possible. They were taken by surprise, but complied readily enough. Only Vander Hayden, making some complaint that the cabin party had been kept in ignorance of what they ought to have been told. While they were being ferried across in the boat, the captain and George returned for the last time to the deck. We are well out of this, sir, remarked George. We shall be safe over there. Yes, unless they come across to attack us. Come across? What? In the long boat? Yes, in the long boat. They can't launch it while we have possession of the deck but as the ship is left to them, there will be nothing to prevent their doing it. It would be a desperate thing to attempt, landing on the reef under such fire as we could open on them, no doubt, if they attempted it by day. But in the dark they could get ashore unseen by us, and perhaps make one or two voyages before we found it out. 
Besides, the longboat will hold a great number of men. We must not risk it. What do you propose then, sir? To destroy the boat, answered the captain. It is easily enough done, if you will lend a hand. But first, are all the others safely landed on the reef? Yes, the boat with Mr. Rolf in her is just coming back for us. Very good. Then we will go to work. He went below and fetched two iron pots, in each of which he placed a heavy charge of powder, rolling a piece of rag round it to prevent its escape. Then, motioning to George to pick up some heavy blocks of wood, he moved noiselessly across the deck and laid the pots in the bottom of the boat, one at each end, with the blocks to keep them down. Next, he laid a train of powder with a slow match, the end of which he ignited. They now crept down to the boat and put off. They had almost got across when a loud explosion, followed almost simultaneously by a second, was heard. Immediately afterwards, the men poured up on deck, having evidently contrived some way for themselves of getting up there. Some of them carried carbines, and they might have fired on the captain and his two companions if these had not hastily drawn up the boat and made for the shelter of the shed. Safe now, sir, remarked Rolf, unless they swim across to us. They'll hardly try that on, rejoined the captain. They would be an easy mark for our rifles, and they know we have several and can use them. We roused put a man to watch their movements, but I think that is all that will be needed. If breakfast is ready, we may go to it with an appetite. This had hardly been completed when Hooper, the man set to watch, came in with the information that a flag of truce had been hoisted on the vessel, and three men, Gott, Shirley, and Sullivan, had come down to the edge of the water to parley with the captain. Are they unarmed? asked the second mate. Yes, sir, answered Hooper. Can you see anything of the other men? inquired the doctor. There are none on the reef, sir, but I thought I saw one or two peeping over the ship's bulwarks. I guessed as much, said McCarthy. You ought to think twice, sir, before you go to meet these men. You would be an easy mark for anyone hiding in the forecastle, and they may think that, if they once got you out of the way, they could do anything they pleased. That's possible, said Captain Rankin, but I can't help that. There is a chance of avoiding bloodshed, and it is my duty to go. Well, anyway, let us take any precautions we can, urged Rolf. Five or six of us can take our rifles and show ourselves over the top of the barricade. They will see that if they have you at their mercy, we have Gott and Shirley and Sullivan at ours. You may do that, if you like, said the skipper. There is never any harm in showing that one is prepared. The mate's suggestion was acted on. Half a dozen marksmen, including the two Dutchmen, Rivers, Margots, Whitaker, and the mate, took their guns, climbed onto the top of the barricade, and then stationed themselves behind it, the muzzles of their rifles projecting from between the stones. Then the captain, accompanied by McCarthy, went down to the edge of the reef, and hailing the three men opposite, asked what they had to say. "'We're very sorry,' said Gott. "'Sorry as you're displeased, sir. But the most of us don't know what we've done. Do you call running the ship on a reef, and then trying to plunder her, and after that attempting to murder us nothing? It was only one or two as did that.' We didn't wreck the ship or join in the attack as was made on you, sir, said Sullivan. I'm glad to hear it. What do you want now? We want you and the others to come over again, and we'll go back to our duties, answered Gott. And what about the mutineers? asked the captain. There was but a few of they, and they was mostly killed in the scrimmage. Indeed, were Bostock and Van Wright killed, may I ask? 
There was no answer. The skipper repeated his question, and then Shirley said sullenly, I don't know as they was. Very good. Van Ryck was the man who ran the ship on the reef. Mr. Rivers saw him do it. Bostock fired deliberately at Mr. Vander Hayden. I saw him do it. I don't want to inquire too closely what others may have done, but these two are clearly guilty. If they are put into irons and brought over here, together with all the arms in your possession, we will return to the ship, and when help comes, no proceedings will be taken against anybody, except the two prisoners. These are the only terms I shall offer you. I shall expect to receive an answer in an hour or two. The men, after exchanging a few words, sullenly withdrew. The captain and McCarthy, who had been chosen to accompany the skipper, because the men are always unwilling to hurt the doctor, also beat a hasty retreat and informed their companions what had passed. Do you think they will give in, sir? asked Whitaker. No, replied the captain. I fear Van Ryck and Bostock have too much weight with them. Besides, sailors on these occasions are apt to stick together. If we don't get an answer within the hour, we must look for broken heads. The hour passed, and then another hour or two. The afternoon slipped away, and there was no return of the deputies. The men kept quite out of sight, but the sound of hammering and sawing and the buzz of voices were plainly audible. They are up to something, sir, said Rolf, making a raft most likely by which they hope to reach the shore. They've plenty of materials and some smart hands among them. Don't you think that is likely, sir? I think it is very likely, answered the skipper. Only I am afraid they are more likely to use it to make an attack on us than to reach the shore. Or rather, they will attempt the latter, but only when they have carried out the former. They won't go without the money if they can help it. But the first thing for us will be to ascertain what they are really about, and we can do that, though not without some risk. The boat is still lying off at the place where we moored her when we came across for the last time. If we got aboard her, we might row out to the other side of the reef, keeping at a safe distance, and then we should find out what they are doing. No doubt, sir, rejoined Rolf, but would they let us do it? I am pretty sure there are one or two fellows lying under the bulwarks, watching us from the deck. They could pick off anyone who tried that. I am afraid that is only too likely, said Captain Rankin but it is so important for us to know what they are up to that I think we must attempt it. Who will volunteer for the service? He was answered by half a dozen eager voices, declaring each man's readiness to make the adventure. Very good, gentlemen. I thank you heartily, said the skipper. The men I want must be good divers, if possible, but certainly good swimmers. They must also, of course, understand the management of a boat. I can't swim, I am sorry to say, cried Walters. I can swim, but I am no diver, said Rolf. I can swim and dive, but I am a poor hand at managing a boat, added Margetts. But look here, Captain. Here's your man, George Rivers. He swims like a fish and dives like a cormorant and can manage a boat first rate. He will do for one, no doubt, said the Captain. And I think, Meinherr Moritz, you offered, did you not? You, I know, can both swim and dive, and, I believe, understand managing a boat? Yes, sir, returned Moritz. I believe, without vanity, I can say I do. I shall be pleased to undertake this in company with Mr. Rivers. Very good, said the skipper. That is settled, then. Now, gentlemen, this is what you have to do. You must get into the water here, out of the sight of the ship, and swim round, keeping under water as much as possible, 
Then get under the lee of the boat and bring her round, sheltering yourselves under the cover of her side. Of course, our fears may be groundless. There may be no one lying in wait. But I fancy I have seen heads looking from time to time over the ship's sides, and it is best to take every precaution. Now be off as quick as possible, for the daylight is dying out. George and Moritz complied. Going to the farther point of the reef, they stripped, and slipping silently into the water, began swimming round the reef. When they got to the point where their heads would be visible from the ship, they dived and swam under water, neither of them reappearing until their heads came to the surface close under the bows of the boat. Capitally managed, cried the captain. If they get her out from shore, all will be safe. I really hope our apprehensions were unfounded. But at this moment, two or three guns were fired from the ship, and several bullets splattered in the water. Moritz, who had incautiously raised his head, had a narrow escape. George seized and dragged him down, himself only just escaping a bullet, which whistled over his head. The boat, however, was by this time in motion, and they were enabled to drag it along with them, without again exposing themselves until they were out of shot. Then they climbed in and rowed to the place whence they had started. Here the captain received them with many commendations and thanks, and, while the two adventurers were resuming their clothes, went off in the boat with two of the men to the other side of the wreck, taking care to keep at a safe distance. He returned in half an hour with a very uncomfortable report. "'Have you found out what they are about, sir?' asked Margots. "'I am sorry to say I have.' They mean mischief, and, I fear, will be only too likely to be able to work it. They are putting together a raft and are getting on fast with it. But may not that be only to enable them to make their escape to the shore, suggested Walters. If that had been their intention, they would not have fired on Rivers and Mr. Moritz. There is no use in disguising facts. They mean to attack us. But how can they contrive, sir? asked the second mate. Neither wind nor tide is favorable to them. A raft is a very difficult thing to manage at all times, and they would have to approach this part of the reef under the fire of all our guns. You are right, Rolf, replied the captain, but unfortunately the raft is not the only work they are engaged on. Somehow it appears that the launch was not so much injured as I had supposed. Two or three smart hands have been employed on it, and it looked as though it had been made all right again. What they mean to do, I expect, is to launch both raft and boat at nightfall, and the one will tow the other till our reef is reached. Then they will land in the dark, and then either take up a position behind our barricade, from which they can fire upon us whenever we go in and out of our hut, or else make an assault upon us as soon as the moon rises, and overpower us by superior numbers. The first would be the surest plan for themselves, but their dread of Mr. Wyndham's return may induce them to adopt the other. They outnumber us, remember, at least six to one. It is only too likely that you are right, said George. But what do you advise? I think, in the first place, we must complete the barricade round the hut. At present we are open on two sides to a sudden rush, which would overpower us by force of numbers. Behind, the rise of the rock is so precipitous that they could only climb it with great difficulty, one by one. We must place our best marksmen up there, and the others behind our barricades down below. We must put a man, when the darkness comes on, at the very extremity of the reef, nearest to the wreck. He will be able to distinguish what they are doing sufficiently well to tell us when they are launching their raft. It cannot, I know, be completed for many hours yet, 
As soon as it does put off, we can burn a blue light. I took care last night to bring some with me, and that will enable us to fire on them, while approaching and landing, with effect. We may be fortunate enough to kill their leaders, in which case the others will submit at once. If I catch sight of that card, Gill, exclaimed Vanderheiden, he will not trouble us any more. Ha! Vrank! No, responded Moritz. He doesn't deserve much mercy, and I don't imagine he would show us much. None at all, I fear, assented the captain. But I don't desire his death on that account, but because he is leading these poor misguided fellows into crime and ruin. But no more of him. If we mean to put up our barricades, we must go to work at once. All right, Captain, said Rolf. We will not delay a minute. A quantity of barrels and boxes, with which the reef was still strewn, were brought up and filled with stones, as well as some heaps of wrecked wood, which had been thrown up above high-water mark. In two hours' time, a barricade had been erected sufficiently strong to repel any sudden assault. Then attention was turned to the high ground behind the hut. Large stones and pieces of wood were laid along the highest ridge, behind which the riflemen might fire in safety. This party consisted of McCarthy, Rolf, George Rivers, Margetts, Whitaker, and Walters, together with Vander Hayden and Moritz. The captain took the command of the party below, which consisted of the seven sailors. Here also Miss Vander Hayden was placed under the captain's special protection. When the hut was first erected, a space had been partitioned off to serve as Ankin's sleeping place, and George, during the captain's absence in the boat, had employed his time in doubling this partition and filling up the space between the boards with stones, so that even if all the other defenses were carried, she would still have a last place of shelter. When the job was done, the whole party sat down to rest and take some refreshment. The evening came on before they had finished their meal, and in a short time it was quite dark. If they mean to come, remarked the captain, it will be pretty soon now. The noise of hammering has ceased for the last half hour. They must have completed their job. And now it will be seen whether they are going to make for the shore or attack us. It was an anxious moment. The whole party sat in front of their barricade, on the stones or logs of which it was composed, listening intently to catch any sound which might determine the momentous question at issue. Presently, the silence was broken by Coxwell, the sailor whom the captain had stationed at the farthest point of the reef. He came up with the information that the boat and raft were both afloat, and by the lanterns they had lighted, he could see the men getting on board. We must all take our places, said the captain. I will go down to the water's edge and listen. Mr. Rivers, be ready to put a match to the blue lights as soon as I call to you. All obeyed in silence. Ankin took leave of her brother and Moritz and bade also a general farewell to the others. Her eye, as George could not help fancying, lighting with special kindness on him. When they had all taken up their stations, there was a silence of some minutes, and then the voice of the captain was heard. Light up! I hear them coming! Rivers obeyed, and a lurid flame suddenly sprang forth, by the light of which the boat and raft were both distinctly visible the former with only five or six rowers aboard, the other following in tow and crowded with armed men. "'The party on the rocks! Fire on the boat!' shouted Captain Rankin. "'Those in the shed on the raft!' He was obeyed on the instant. Eight rifles cracked almost at the same moment from the rocks. The steersmen and two of the rowers dropped dead in their places. The other two flung themselves into the bottom of the boat, wounded but not killed. 
Several also on board the raft fell into the sea or into their companions' arms, and a cry for quarter was raised. But the next moment the voice of Bostock sounded loud and clear. Step into the water, he cried. We are already on the reef. It is not above our knees. He sprang out himself as he spoke and began wading ashore, followed, after a moment's pause, by the other men. Several volleys were discharged from the barricade and rocks, not without their effect, though the mark was now more difficult to hit. In a few minutes, the mutineers had found refuge, as the captain had anticipated, on the outer side of the barricade, which the besieged, if they may so be called, had run up for their own protection. The riflemen were now called down from the rocks and joined their companions in the shed. The fire not having been returned from either the boat or the raft, no injuries had been sustained. The situation of Captain Rankin and his companions still appeared to be almost hopeless, as the fight would now be carried on on almost equal terms, and the mutineers still outnumbered them in the proportion of four to one. It seemed most likely now that they would try to surround the shed on all four sides, firing through the crevices, which were as available to them as to those within, and so soon pick off all the defenders. But for this, light was necessary, and they were therefore waiting for the moon to rise. While they were still waiting in anxious suspense, a stone with a paper wrapped around it was thrown through the open window. The captain picked it up and read it. It had no name attached to it, but professed to come from the whole of the crew, except those with Captain Rankin. It stated that the hut was completely surrounded, and that the assailants had the lives of all those within at their mercy. But they wished to avoid further bloodshed. If the five thousand pounds which had been removed from Mr. Whitaker's cabin should be given up, together with all the arms in the possession of the besieged party, they would go quietly away without hurting anyone. But if this was refused, an attack would be made as soon as the moon rose, and no man's life would be spared. It was added that if no answer was sent before moonrise, that would be regarded as a refusal. When the captain had finished reading, no one spoke for a while. At last, McCarthy broke the silence. Have you any idea, sir, of complying with their demand? You see, they do not ask what we could not have agreed to, the surrender of Miss Vander Hayden. No, said Mr. Whitaker, and I do not think my employers would blame you if you did comply. I dare say we should all agree to bear some portion of the ransom. Several of the others broke in together, declaring their willingness to pay any portion in their power. What do you say, Mr. Rivers? asked the captain, observing that he had not spoken. I would pay my share, sir, answered George, anything that is in my power, but I fear it would be useless. The best hope these men have in escaping the penalty of their mutiny lies in our death. If we were to surrender ourselves to them, as this letter proposes, I think they would murder us in cold blood. All except— You need not mention her name, sir, interposed Vander Hayden. But you say well. I know the villain who leads these men. He is quite capable of that, or any other atrocity. We had better die sword in hand like men than be stabbed like sheep. You speak only too truly, sir, said the captain. Our choice lies between one kind of death or another, and I, for one, choose that of a brave man who will have no trafficking with villains. He looked round him and read approval in every eye. You are right, sir, said McCarthy briefly, and the others echoed the sentiment. No one spoke for the next ten minutes. Each was busy with his own thoughts, such as are likely to fill men's minds when on the verge of eternity. The time seemed painfully protracted, and all wished that the trial was over. 
Suspense was worse than death itself. At last, a sudden burst of yellow light streaming through the window warned them that their time had come. The next moment, the door burst in, and a crowd of men, armed with cutlasses and pistols, endeavored to force an entrance. They were met by a general volley, which killed or wounded nearly all the foremost assailants, but the rush from behind was kept up. Several forced themselves into the hut, and a hand-to-hand struggle ensued. Miss Vander Hayden had been placed behind the screen which Rivers had strengthened for her, and he shouted to her, when the attack began, to throw herself on the ground as the best chance there was of her escaping injury. The screen caught the eye of Bostock as he entered in the rush, and he and Van Rijk instantly made for it. Vander Hayden threw himself in Bostock's way, and a fierce encounter began between them, while George, in like manner, interposing between Van Rijk and the screen. They were soon engaged in deadly combat. By this time, the hut was nearly filled with the mutineers. The captain, with McCarthy on one side of him and Reggie on the other, was desperately defending himself against two or three assailants. The third mate, Whitaker, and Walters had been all struck down, and several of the men were mortally wounded, when suddenly there came from the sea a strange and unexpected sound, the boom of a cannon. The strife was instantly suspended. Each man looked in doubt and wonder upon his opponent's face. Then the captain's voice was once more heard. Throw down your arms, you mutinous dogs, and yield yourselves prisoners, or every man among you shall swing at the yardarm before another hour has passed. End of chapter 5. Recording by Mark Friend, Arlington, Virginia, USA.